1: Welcome to the Arsenal Women Askcast on Askblog.com. after a short hiatus for the Women's World Cup which we will talk about a little bit In this episode, I just felt that um, there are loads of podcasts (laughs) during the Women's World Cup and it doesn't feel like a very club football-y type of time. And I kind of knew that in terms of Arsenal and the transfer market, there was going to be a very distinct pre- and post-World Cup market. We will discuss a little bit of that post-World Cup market with my guest in a minute because Arsenal have announced a signing this week, uh, who is also a World Cup winner. So that ties up a lot of the themes we're going to talk about with also going to talk about um, the 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 situation, shall we say, with the RFEF in Spain and everything that's been going on in, in there, not just for the last week, I think, but over a period of many years. And here to discuss all of that, um, probably the best guess I could t- get to talk about all of these things is Alex Ibaseta. Alex, how are you doing?
0: Yeah, good recovering from what is a six week World Cup and then the last week on top of it.
1: I was gonna say, are you over the jet like yet? How long did that take you?
0: It it took me more than I expected. Um I think I'm like I'm still trying to keep the early rise. I was yep. waking up at like five AM when I first got back and now I've kind of shifted it to like seven thirty and I I'm like quite keen to keep it, but I'm sure this is not gonna be the case in the next episode.
1: Yeah, I did. um, not, Not quite the same, but I think during the second week of the World Cup, I was in LA and my wife and daughter were in Brazil. So I was kind of working to English time, LA time australian new zealand time and brazil time all at the same time and that week felt very very strange and i did the same thing in la i was waking up at like five five i was only there for five days but i was just creeping up towards like seven thirty, eight a.m and i was thinking oh god no i'm getting acclimatized to la time just at the time i have to go home so yeah it's it's all it's all a bit mad
0: no matter which way you go
1: Uh, So, there's going to be kind of three parts to this podcast. Um, We'll talk about the World Cup. We'll talk about uh, the situation with the Spanish FA, which I know you've been across, and we have put in the show notes an article Alex wrote in The Guardian um, on Sunday, just gone, which I think encapsulates really that this is not just an isolated incident, that this has a lot of history, even that predates um, some of the, shall we say, characters, uh, that are currently in it but first since it happened well since the announcement happened yesterday as broken by arse blog news over two weeks ago arsenal have signed uh, leo quadina from barcelona um a center half alex you're very across barcelona just your first kind of impression of the signing uh the player and how you see her fitting in at arsenal
0: Yeah, I was quite shocked by the signing in general because I know she was, she obviously was out on loan into to Italy um, from Barcelona, and I think from what I heard, she was quite keen to go back to Italy and play there. So I think the Arsenal kind of interest came in at you know a shock for the player as well. I think, Um, and when you when you balance the options and sorry. When you balance the options and you have the ability to go to Italy and you have the ability to play for Arsenal, um, I think there's there's a clear and obvious choice there, especially at the, the stage that Laia Colina is at at her career. Um, I think her problem with Barcelona is that she was never going to be a starting centre-back with Mavi León and Irene Baredes. I mean, it's it's quite hard to figure out who would be a starting centre-back with yeah. and Irene Baredes. So her problem was always time. It was always playing time. That's why she went out on loan. It's why she wanted to leave in the first place because she was just not getting the enough playing time. And you kind of saw it in the World Cup um, that it took that effect of you know her not being able to to fit in at, a, at an elite level as smoothly as someone who's played all ninety minutes for for club level. But you know, for Arsenal, I think it's quite good, especially when you look at our centre back situation, which I don't know how. Depressed we want to be when we talk about it. I mean, it's definitely gotten better over the window, but I think for Arsenal, it's, it's quite good to have Laia come in because of the standard of training that she's been keeping up for the last year. You know, she doesn't play much for Barcelona, but she's still integrated in the team. She's still got minutes and she's still, at the end of the day, training with, you know, the best team in Europe at the moment, best team in the world. So I think it's it's a big plus for Arsenal. I think especially with the the confidence she got after the World Cup as well is obviously a big positive.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the, the Arsenal video um, when they unveiled the signing yesterday, you know, made strong reference to this, to her being a winner because obviously she's won the Champions League and the World Cup this year. So, not bad. And uh, probably a beneficiary of a situation we're going to talk about later, the fact that Mappy Leon withdrew, um, should we say, withdrew her labour from the Spanish national team, which gave Lea Cordina the chance to play in the World Cup, albeit she didn't start straight away. So, um, what what about her kind of um, performance for Spain in the World Cup? Because Jorge Vilda made a lot of changes after that that defeat to Japan, and she comes in against Switzerland, scores um, a, a pretty comical own goal <laughs> against Switzerland, which, to be honest, was the only way Switzerland were ever going to score in that game. Scores at the other end, but. I guess, um, what, did you, what did you make of her World Cup um, overall as well? Even though we should point out Arsenal's interest, I think, predates that.
0: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting one. Obviously, with, as you said, you know Mappi not being there. Um, Ivan Andres also picked up an injury, um, which would be, she was the captain, so she would have definitely been starting with at, um, Irina Barredes at centre-back. So Laia like, Codina has always been this player that's been good enough to be a second-tier player and like the understudy of, you know, and you know, about it, there's of a Mappy Leon, but she's never been quite there to be firsthand. So she's also one of those players that she takes the opportunities that she gets. She, she takes the opportunity to prove herself when she knows that she's only there because of injury or because Mappi Leon is in the national team. So she's always been quite keen to do that. She's done that since the beginning. Um, When the 15 players walked out, she went in, you know, she scored a really nice goal as well. So like, she's definitely that player that, Knows her worth and has the confidence um, to know exactly what kind of player she is, and she proves it every every opportunity she can. Of course, the own goal is just not uh, ideal. But it's it's what I said before of the fact that she's not had a lot of minutes, neither with club or the national team. So I kind of I feel for her in the sense that she's not been able ever over the last few seasons to be able to get at a really good consistent elite rhythm. And, mm. that, and we see that you know when players come in after injury we, we see it when players just don't play minutes when um, we saw it in Arsenal last season Catherine Kuhl was just thrown into the deep end at Arsenal and you saw the difference it made um, you know she never got minutes before that so um, I think Laya Colina is is a victim to that of not being able to get a consistent run but obviously with Arsenal I would assume she might be consistently starting um, at least until obviously Leah's back and kind of Jonas figures out what he wants to do but I think the consistency is what she's lacking. And once she gets that, I think she'll she'll thrive under it.
1: Yeah, and she's made a big decision to leave Barcelona where she's been since she was 14, um, 23 years old now. So she, clearly she's made that decision based on playing time, which like you, I think that suggests that while no guarantees can ever be made to a player that she's come to Arsenal because she sees a, a clearer route to the team, particularly without Early. Amanda Illestek came in earlier in the summer. She's very much a right centre-back who can also play right-back. To me, that's kind of Leah cover. We know Lotta can play on both sides, but Kadina, is it right to say, even though she's right-footed, she's largely played on the left of the centre-back partnership? And That that being the case, do you see her, even though she's not a left-footer, and I'm afraid I just don't think there are many of those around um, as, as a kind of replacement for Hafer?
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because obviously, I think again you can Jonas can kind of capitalize on the fact that Leia hasn't really had that consistency. I think he he can kind of start from fresh and mold her into what she wants, into what he wants to kind of make it work. And um, I think she's not dumb and will very well know that Arsenal have dead Arsenal have Leo Williams, and you know it's 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 clear to anyone who does any kind of research on Arsenal. It's not you know it's not a secret what our preferred centre-back pairing would probably be. It's not a secret of the players that we have in the, you know, apart from Amana and just Ilishted, you know, um, Lata, Jen, Leah, they all have their solidified positions in the back line. So I think she's not, she knows what she's getting herself into and I'm pretty sure Jonas, as blunt as he is, would probably have told her as well. So I think she's, I think she is just quite keen to to play for a club and get minutes at a big club, um, probably in Champions League as well. So, I mean, let's not jinx that yet. But <laughs> I think for her, the most important thing is getting that consistency in minutes.
1: And before we leave the subject of Leia Quadina, uh, what do you see as a key, perhaps one key strength and one weakness of hers?
0: Um, I think the weakness is definitely, she still has a lot of nerves, um, as we've seen, you know, we've seen that experience that with Lata it's taken Lotta a few seasons to kind of get acclimatized and get the confidence that you know she you would want to see in in your centre back. As we've seen Leah Williamson, so I think that's kind of the her weakness is that, and you know, it's no through no fault of her own, um, but it is the the elite weak, weakness of just getting a bit nervous. As we saw in the World Cup, you know, that own goal is essentially that it was the concentration, the the nerves, and the. I wouldn't say lack of self-confidence because I think she has that quite a lot as we've seen but it's just the the sharpness and the calmness that you get only with minutes essentially but her strength is obviously you know playing for Barcelona since she was 14. Um, the style of play that you pick up naturally you you don't even have to play minutes you just train there and you you pick up the style um, and obviously you know Leah Williamson is a person that we love very, very much. And she's good with the ball. She's technically good with the ball. She's aggressive in the attack, which is everything that Barcelona kind of trains their centre-backs to be, as we see in Irene Mapi. So I think that's probably her biggest strength in the sense that you don't get players that have played with Barcelona from a very young age to come to your club, because most of them do stay at Barcelona at the end of the day, Um, or stay within Spain for that matter. But I think it's it's quite unique for us to get a Barcelona defender and it obviously plays to our strengths when you look at our midfields, when you look at um, what works so well with Lee in particular. Um, So I think she'll have the the aggressiveness to kind of start the attack from the back, which is not always what you get, especially with English defenders. You know, they're a bit more reserved. They're a bit more defensive. You know, this is not our problem. Like we're here to defend, you know, our midfielders in the attack, do the attack. But, I think she she will be happy to, to start the attack because it's within her nature. So I think that would be... Yeah, I think that's her biggest strength coming into Arsenal.
1: Yeah, and I think if you look at the age profile of a lot of Arsenal signings, there's certainly two layers going on where there are <clears throat> excuse me, like Ilistet, Lacasse, 30 years old... Um, I think Serna has been a target. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, like very much in that kind of bracket. And then like Russo's 23, Cordina's 23, you know, there were signings in January, like Cool and Palova, who are in their early 20s. So I think she very much fits into that, that slightly younger core of signings. And um, yeah, I think, uh, I think Arsenal are going to want to add According to my information, they still want something for the right back position. I'm not. I. I don't really know whether they saw um, Cernaquart. Oh, I, I really need. I, actually, I don't know whether I need to learn her name or, or not. No, yeah. whether, whether they saw her there, but um, yeah, I think that's another piece of business they'd like to get done. I think Gio will go back out on loan, probably to Spain um, as well. So I, I don't think there's much business business left that Arsenal are going to do. Certainly not before. They have a deadline of Thursday for the the immediate Champions League qualifiers in September, but the WSL deadline is September the 14th. And I, I suspect they might get one more in before that, but I don't know that for sure at the moment. So let's let's leave that subject uh, to one side. And as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, you spent six weeks in Australia. Did you go to New Zealand at all or just Australia?
0: Just Australia.
1: So just the kind of thousand foot overall like one of the things i found really interesting um kind of covering the tournament remotely if you will is that like last year we had the euros which was all on like my doorstep and Mm. i went to nine games and and all of that and then the next tournament a year later literally on the other side of the world different time zone and all of that how would you compare just on the ground in australia what what was the feel um, for you in terms of like the Women's World Cup as an event and how the Australian public took to it and traveling fans and things like that? Just just your overall experience of being out there.
0: Yeah, it was, it was definitely quite unique cities to city. So I was in Perth, I was in Brisbane, I was in Melbourne and I was in Sydney. Um, and they were all quite different. Um, it re- like it was really dependent on the city we were in. Perth, obviously, that's where Sam Kerr and Lydia Williams are from. So, like everybody knows who Sam Kerr, without even necessarily knowing or necessarily following the Matildas. So that was kind of the key point of everybody knew that Sam Kerr was playing a World Cup. That mm-hmm. was the, the 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 epicenter of of Perth essentially. But at the same time, um, I was really you know. Colombia fans, we all learned about Colombia fans. And that was kind of insane across Australia. I didn't, I never realized how big of a, a Latin community there was in Australia in general. Um, I saw quite a lot of Chileans as well, but in Colombia, like I went to three Columbia matches, one in Perth, one in Melbourne and one in Sydney. And they were all the same. It yeah. was just, it was insane. Um, so I think it was a really mm-hmm. good mix of traveling fans as but like for very obviously particular teams, you know, England say England obviously had a really big traveling fan base. Australia had obviously their people all over that would travel between the matches as well. Um and everybody else was local. Like every every you know, I saw Jamaican And I tried interviewing them about Bunny Shaw. No one had any idea who Bunny Shaw was, but they're Jamaican. So because they're all they're all just local people that want to see their country play, essentially. Which I found that um really interesting. So it was yeah, it was the welcoming of it was very particular to the city, but also like in Brisbane, it was quite isolated, and Melbourne it was. Melbourne is a very big sporting city. So like the the Fed Square where the Fan Fest was, it was packed for every. For every Matildas match in particular as well, it was just packed, packed, packed. When the Matildas won their quarterfinal, there was like fireworks and fire. And it was like really, really, the the support was insane. In Sydney, it was a lot more normalized. Mm. I went to a shop. It was a book, film and record shop. Um, I bought a book. And the guy was like, why are you here? And I was like, yeah, for the World Cup. And we just had about a five, ten minute chat about the Matildas. And you can tell, you know, this this guy has never seen women's football in his life before. Mm. But now he cares about the Matildas and he cares about what happened in the last match, what's going to happen in the next match. And it's it was, I think that was the most impressive thing of the Australians really... Picking up the tournament again, you know, it's a very isolated event, but they really embraced it and they really cared about Australia, which I think was kind of the highlight of everything, I think.
1: Yeah, I think that's the fascinating thing about holding it somewhere like that is that you do have all these expat communities. I know, for example, there's um, you know Brazil is one of the biggest diasporas in the world. There's loads of Brazilians in Sydney and places like that, and I think you do get that in in Latin America, and you see that in men's sports as well. Latin American fans, in particular, you look at something like the Club World Cup, which, like in men's football, which most European fans don't care about. But when it happens, the Latin American fans, they'll sell their cars and stuff and they'll go over. Uh, lots of Colombians in guitar for the Men's World Cup, even though the team went there. Just like loads of these these kind of stories and these communities. An island as well, a big diaspora, big Irish expat community in Sydney. So you've kind of got like, you know, uh, I, I've never been to Australia, but it does strike me as that like all these kind of melting That's pots, true. which makes it. Yeah, I never,
0: I never expected it to be that much. Um, it is honestly impressive the diversity that there is in Australia.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I guess like a, a question I'd have is because I, I've had the sense from afar that this thing has grown and people were interested in. We we all saw stats about the viewing figures um, and things like that. And I was talking to an Australian friend of mine who was actually involved in um, organising some of the fan parks, not interested in football at all, but she got well into it. And uh, they were talking about stuff like um, for one of the games, they didn't show the nine o'clock news for like the first time and because it clashed with the Matildas game. All these touchstones and how it was outstripping like um, other like big Australian sporting events, and there's a lot of sports to compete with in Australia and a lot of sports that Australia are very good at as well, like rugby and cricket and things like that. How do you see, I guess, I I don't know if there was any chat about the legacy of this tournament in that the thing we experienced over here after the Euros was a big boom in attendances, but that's because the Lionesses largely play here. So like Leah Williamson and Beth Mead, play at the emirates that sells tickets for the emirates whereas the australian players largely play in europe so do you think this is just going to be a matilda's thing was there any discussion about about what things might look like after the tournament
0: yeah i think the matilda's thing is obviously quite a big focus in terms of you know no matter every tournament that the matilda's play from now on they're going to have that you know that unwavering support but i think it's more about the sport, like football, as you said, you know, you have Aussie rules, you have um the rugby, the cricket. And, for example, when the Matodas were in the, the penalty shootout, um there was, at that, that same time, there was a lot of AFL matches happening throughout the country. Um There was one AFL match where they stopped the game and showed the penalties on the big screen Um at the MCG, which is probably one of the most, like, obviously, it's a very renowned uh, cricket ground where they play yeah. the AFL. Um, They were showing the penalties on the screen, and the concourse was just jammed, packed with people around the telly watching the penalties. You know, this is it's people that wouldn't necessarily care about football because they're watching AFL because that is their sport, Um, and you genuinely saw them stop in you know the middle of a match to watch the Matildas win. Um, There was an AFL of. AFL match finished and there was a press conference after the coaches and all the staff, the players were late to the press conference because they wanted to finish watching the penalties. You know, it's like, it's a crazy effect that it's had. Um, I met an AFL player, a woman's AFL player. Um, They said that after training, they want to start playing football. Um, You know, after their own football training, they want to start playing football. Um, So I think the effect goes I think the Matildas have always had the support because they're Australian, and mm. as you mentioned, you know you can't really support them in club level in Australia, so you have to support them on a national level, and I think they've always had that that really, really strong support. but now I think the sport is the one that's advancing it's football that's kind of becoming a more natural Australian thing to do outside of you know the the very historic Um, sports and leading sports that Australia has so I think that's the that's the effect it's the interest in the sport rather than just the interest in the Matildas if that makes sense
1: yeah yeah and again like we do see this in men's football I mean you'll, you'll appreciate with with Chile as well and the South American teams again in men's football like That's why players like Alexis Sanchez, Arturo Vidal, why playing for Chile means so much to them because they have to leave basically and then they come back and they feel like they owe this debt and and that's why, you know, for a lot of, again kind of I guess drawing a, a comparison with like Latin America in men's football that like the players have to leave, but they come back and the national teams are strong and they'll feel that connection and that pride. And it must have been nice for a lot of those players as well to get a good like three months at home, um, particularly like not that long after COVID where most of them can go home for a few months. But I guess um, I'll ask you again in very broad terms, your overall impression of the tournament because... I think the thing I thought coming into the tournament was there are six or seven teams that could win this, but I kind of doubt all of them. I think all of them have like a bit of a flaw. And to me, it just depends which one of them is going to work out their flaw in the tournament. And look, we'll talk about Spain in a minute. So we kind of know it was them in the end, but actually I think the theme of this tournament was some of was some of those mid tier nations look like they're catching up. So for me, this tournament was about Colombia, Jamaica. I don't want to say Nigeria because Nigeria actually have a very good history um, in the Women's World Cup, and it wasn't their first time in the knockout rounds. But just this sense that some of those teams, you know, we didn't see any ten nils um, in this tournament this time around. And um, was that something? Was that something you felt and that was that was talked about a lot uh, on the ground, as it were?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think. I think it's we have to point that out because we see from the 2019 World Cup to now how much has happened in just four years in terms of the level and the standard of, you know, the the balance throughout, you know, the, the elites that have always been the elite because they are the elite, to say the least. But it's, it's those, you know, it's the Colombian team that have actually impressed, you know, they had, as I think anyone can agree, they had no right to beat Germany the way they did And Lina Caicedo had no right to score (laughs) against, you know, these elite players. And that's just the standard that is now, you know, the U.S. lost um, in a World Cup. You know, when when was the last time that we've seen the World Cup crash, um, the U.S. crash out so early in a World Cup? So it's like, it's, I think this tournament was a really big testament to the effort that's been going on individually, whether it be national teams or clubs, as we will see now when we talk about Spain. it's a lot of work done over on women's football. It's not just particular to the national team. It's it's the players, you know, motivating themselves and having to be at an elite level. Um, you know, Lina like Gaicedo just landed the the deal with Real Madrid, but you know, she had to get to that level for eighteen years old, um, in whatever way she could in a very underdeveloped, you know, women's football country essentially. Um, as much natural talent as you have, you need to get to a physical standard, a mental standard, a professional standard in order to be a professional, and you know, in a, in a, in the a top league. So I think the mental shift that people and players have now to become more professional and more elite is quite evident. And you you see that motivation because now you can go into the World Cup and you can compete. Um, you know, Colombia had, had every possibility to knock England out of you know the World Cup, and it's possible. And that just it's a domino effect down through new generations to different countries that you can have xyz standard you can have xyz problems with your federation but if you force yourself individually and you you take in count and you you're able to maximize what you have and really commit to it then, and then it can happen i think this tournament was a testament to that and you know kudos to every single player that essentially proved that to everyone
1: yeah, and that that's the kind of the dichotomy, isn't it? Because like we're talking about some of these mid-tier nations, but actually, like you know, coming up to the mark a bit more. But I I think you're right that that's kind of player-led um, in terms of some of those federations are not responsible for it. Like I'm not going to sit here and tell you that like the Jamaican Football Federation is is responsible for the performance that they put in. Um, or Nigerian FA um, for example and I think there's you know particularly around Europe the scouting's getting a bit better in the US as well the scouting's a bit better you look at Nigeria I mean if you told me Nigeria would play this well and Assis at Oshawa would play very little part in it I wouldn't have believed you but you know they've got players at Houston Dash you know you've got um, with Haiti like players who now at Leon, for example and A lot of these kind of players, you said, Linda Caicedo's at Real Madrid, a club that I think are one of the best developers of talent in European club football is Levante. They've got Rodriguez um, and uh, Redondo. Does Redondo play for Levante? Yeah, and they've they've had Tatiana Pinto, like players who really, really play well in this World Cup. And Levante, for example, very key developer of talent and... I suppose um, let's talk about it from a footballing aspect first. Spain, obviously, the winners overall. I have to say, I didn't think they would win it, um, largely because I don't rate their coach. But also, I think a problem they solved during this tournament is I look at Spain and I say, I see. Barcelona, but Barcelona import their forwards, Mm -hmm. right? Barcelona's front three are usually not Spanish. They usually get players from other countries to do that part. But in uh, Salma Paraluello... Um, I don't know why that's such a tongue twister it's, for me.
0: It's
1: a, it's a tongue twister even for like <laughs> people. It's, it, it's where the double L is. Yeah. I have to visualize it in my head. But it, but in Salma, um, like they found like a direct player up front, which I think they've been missing for a long time. So what did you make of Spain's tournament? And I guess, I mean, they they were the deserved winners. I think. Um, putting all the other stuff to one side like what did you make of Spain in this tournament on the pitch particularly with the kind of turmoil they came in with anyway off the pitch
0: yeah it was it was obviously a testament again to the individual players in the player union um, to win a World Cup despite everything that's been happening over the last year you know it is quite impressive to be in a camp enclosed with the people you're at war against for two months essentially and how you know that mental weight that you carry for those two months aside from the mental weight of playing a world cup is you know a testament to how determined and professional these players are and yeah it's always it's always going to be interesting to see Spain because you know it's either they play for Barcelona or they they've played together um, at different times. I think that the start, if I remember correctly, it was six out of the 11 starting lineup for the final were Barcelona players. Um, That's obviously not including Gianni Hermoso, Gen- who yeah. used to play for Barcelona. And you have Alexi Poteas on the bench, so it could have been even more. Um, You put in Padri and Mapi, and you could have had two more Barcelona players quite easily. So that is obviously, you know, that's always going to be a big focal point of no matter who... The national team coaches, you know, these players would have won anyway. Um, I'm actually, I'm, I'm I interviewed Vero Bocquette uh, for the Guardian. She said exactly the same. She's like, it's a testament. You know, these players are are at an elite level, no matter who the national team coaches. It's you know they're at this level not because of the federation, not because of the president, not because of the manager, but because of their individual growth and the fact that as well that the Spain's youth teams have been ridiculously successful for a very long time now. You know, Spain yeah. is holding the U17, U20 and Senior World Cup right now.
1: Uh, I think there were seven players in the squad who won the U... Tw- Which one did they win? In, in 2018, they won two of them. The U17, th- yeah. Yeah, and the U20, I think. And I think they had seven players in the squad who won that U20 title.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's you know, it's that history of, it's the club connection, it's... And, but it's also the fact that most of these players, because a lot of the Spanish players do play in Spain, they've played together at one point or another. They've all played together at club level, and they've all played together at international level for the youth levels. So you know, this is not just like pick, picking like random um, teams that play in, say, you know, the Netherlands, France. It, obviously, women's football has a much smaller pool of, of where you can play. So these players are have been working on this for. Like since the U seventeen essentially, we can probably say. So it is yeah, the the way they play is quite a testament to that. So it's not surprising that they're reaching their peak and that they w- that they did win a World Cup because they've been working on this for so long and we've seen it at a club level, you know, Barcelona has been dominating the Champions League. Um Spanish players have been dominating the headlines. We've seen, you know, Onaba and Manchester United, Lucia Garcia as well, you know, Jerin Mosso in in um, in Mexico, we've seen, you know, PSG has a few players, you know, it's it's quite evident that this has been a long time coming and they they just needed to reach their peak. And again, this is all just, you know, outside of everything that's happened. So it's, it's, it's not surprising that they won, even though it kind of is. But I think it's what you said, Tim, about the fact that there were so many contenders to win the World Cup and each of them had their flaws. And it was just a matter of which one kind of hit it better.
1: Yeah, I mean, I tipped Germany to win the whole thing, so there t- you <laughs> go. That that shows you what, what kind of tournament it was. I said Germany
0: winning Alex Pop golden boot in that really
1: well. Yeah, unfortunately, it kind of looked like Germany's only strategy in the end was Alex Pop or bust, which um, which great player that she is was quite weird given the diversity of talent. Keeping it on Spain, I mean, it, it's strange, right? Because last year we were told. You know, I say we were told so 15 players went on strike um, last September, and there have been loads of stories before that about, particularly, I, I know like Barcelona players were getting injured. And privately, there was some suggestion that when they went away with the national team, the training was so much a lower standard than it was at Barcelona that players were getting injured. There was a story that, um, Vilda didn't show the Spanish players any video of England before the Euros quarter final last year. So when England stuck Millie Bright up front with 10 minutes to go, that seemed to surprise everyone, even though it was a tactic that was uh, certainly widely known by English fans. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Um and then of course we come to the fallout and really this fallout, like I said at the top, is a culmination of things that have been happening for many years that even predate uh, Rubales and Jorge Vilda, which you touched on in the in the Guardian article, you know, in 2015, the players again had to get a coach ousted. And there is a documentary um, about Carrera, which, I mean, some of the images that accompany it are quite uncomfortable with how physical he is with players. And, I guess even knowing all of that and even knowing everything these Spain players carried coming into the tournament, I, I'm kind of caught between feeling surprised, but then kind of checking myself and saying, am I naive to be surprised by the events that have unfolded ever since? Starting with, you know, um, with Ribales's, should we say actions towards Jenny Homozo after the game, like, how shocked and surprised are you by all of this
0: it was it's a weird feeling because it's actually a feeling of relief it's a feeling of relief of the fact that he has caused his own downfall by being himself mm-hmm. it's, it's it's him being himself. The only difference is that there's you know broadcasters and cameras that are broadcasting this to literally the entire world um so it, it's quite poetic almost the fact that He's done it to himself, despite everyone trying so hard for many, many years. Um, all it took was to put a camera on him. That's literally all it is. It's to put the attention on him. It's to put the camera on him and just let him do whatever, whatever he always does. So it was, it was almost a sense of relief, honestly. Um, obviously not shocking, not anything, but the sense of relief that now people can kind of see and not have to take the player's words for it, even though I find it ridiculous that people don't take the player's words for it as it should be, but obviously he's done it to himself now and there's no going back for him, which is quite relieving.
1: Do you think, because the thing is like, I think it's tempting as we're in the eye of the storm at the moment and he's standing around while Rome is burning around him, still saying, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm, you know, it's all, and all of the stuff that's unfolded ever since, I mean, Has that shocked you? Like, because first we have, you know, the incident with the, shall we say, unsolicited contact with Jenny Amosel, which, as you say, everyone has seen because it's broadcast to millions around the world. But since then, and you've been very across this, like the various statements, and then last Friday with the kind of the assembly where everyone assumed that he was going to resign and actually i think in the build-up to that it's like why are you waiting till friday to resign just do it now like don't bother with the assembly but clearly he had in his mind that this was going to be an act of defiance which is continued again does any of that surprise or shock you at all
0: it's it, it does but it doesn't it doesn't in the sense that he's again he's just showing exactly who the person he is he thinks he's untouchable He's entitled. Um, I mean, we've seen his mum go on a hunger strike, and um, I think that says a lot about the way he's been raised. In the sense that he's the little boy that can never do anything wrong,
1: and the fact that apparently he hasn't put a call in and said, "Mum," actually, yeah, no, he's don't do
0: not. This. He said she's not spoken <laughs> to him. The poor woman, you know, putting her life at risk for her son, and he's not even like called to check in on her. Uh, but no, he's he's showing exactly who he is, and he's showing the reason why the federation is is so rotten to the core? it's the fact that you can do you know such a very obvious act of you know and unsolicited you know contact as we as we say it um, and still think you did nothing wrong and still think that you're untouchable and still think that you had every right to do what you did and that everyone who says so otherwise is lying like how how do you how do you even explain that you know that's like a, almost like a sociopathic behavior of just you know being in denial despite literally everyone seeing exactly what happened and but it's also you know apart from him being him it's also a testament to how the federation is inside you know we saw in the assembly the cops and the smiles and the support that he had within the federation and that says exactly everything that you need to know that these players are Literally on their own within an an entire federation who is in support of Rubiales. Obviously, there was talk about him leaving and the vice president to go into power, but they're the same person. You're you're talking about the person who's been acting under Rubiales for a very long time who will have the same ideas and support Rubiales. So it's just, yeah, it's his confidence to feel untouchable within the federation because he can, because he has so much power and control over these people. It's ridiculous. But then it's also his personality of feeling entitled to be like you know and the way he said it as well what's was um he's like do you really think that this kiss would be enough to see me go which i think kind of sums it up quite (laughs) quite bluntly
1: yeah, and you, you pointed there to probably what's likely to happen in, in terms of succession. And yeah, it, it's probably going to be like going from Blatter to Infantino, um, meeting the new boss, same as the old boss. But what of just enclosing Jorge Vilder, Because he was one of the people who was clapping in that room. He's come out since with a very vanilla statement that he didn't necessarily agree with um, Rubiales's actions around the game. But, I mean, clearly, and, and again, you mentioned in the Guardian article the politics behind Vilda being in place and why he's in place and how political it all is and how it's mutual favours and everything. I mean, I really thought, and again, this is where I've been naive, that he might think, do you know what? I've won the World Cup now. This is a bit of a toxic environment. No one really likes me. I'm going, to walk, I'm going to bail now. I can probably, at this point, for the first time in my career, I can probably get a job somewhere else now because I've won the World Cup. Like, no one rated me as a coach. Now, they might do and I can go somewhere else. But, clearly, he's been made an offer by Rupiales, a lucrative one that he's quite interested in. So, I think Rubiales, I think you're right, eventually he'll go, but what happens after that is is kind of open to question whether that will lead to any change. How do you see things panning out for Jorge Vilder?
0: I mean, I think you nailed it on the head there in the sense that, like, surely you're human enough and, a, you know, you have one working neuron is all you need to know, is that it's a good, like, it's a good moment for you to walk away. You've been the manager for eight years. You've gone to two World Cups. You won one of them. You, you know, apart from what an awful manager he is, his CV is good enough to be able to potentially to go on somewhere else. And in the light of all of this, he's done nothing wrong except be a shit manager. So it's it's not like he has a spotlight on him. You know, everyone's wanted him gone for a very, very long time because he was a shit manager, point period, blank. And you would think, And be like, resign. Don't be involved with any of what the federation is going through because that the image of the Spanish federation, the Spanish football right now, is just you know being dragged through the dirt. And you know, leave. There's there's nothing like you have won the World Cup. There is literally nothing else that you can achieve with the national team from now on. And and again, it's like it's quite evident that nobody likes him. Like that's that's no secret. And like he's as dumb as he is he definitely knows it so it's like yeah it's it's quite bizarre to see but again it's you know one of the the talks with Sonia Bermudez to take over as national team coach and she's she's one of those she was one of those uh those from the the national team that spoke up in 2015 against the federation and obviously now she's working with the federation and you have that controversy as to where she stands now um she's coaching the the youth national teams, but again, like there's no, there's no really like, she just seems like another Jorge Villa that it would potentially be too soon for her to take on the national team job, but because she is internal on, because she's always been there, it's kind of, you know, those politics of we'd rather, you know, do this than actually get a manager who's set and ready for this. Um, As Emma Hayes also has also expressed her, mm. her interest in coaching the national team, but within Spain, you know, you have, um, You have the Real Sociedad manager, you have the Levante manager, you have Maria Pri as well, who's at Betis right now. These managers have proven themselves in Spanish football with Spanish footballers. So it's not like Spain has a a shortage of managers to pick from. But yeah, it's now it's just a matter of Jorge Vila just being a parasite and getting whatever he can out of the federation, even though it's just so lot like just not logical thing to do.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Maria Priya. I'd love to see it. That would be a real sign that things have changed. Uh, Maria Priya also used to coach at Levante and uh, used to wear like a Minnie Mouse T-shirt on the yeah, sidelines. Christian Chilo as well for the club I used
0: to play for. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, very very good coach and a, a very good personality. I, I think you'd know things have really changed at the RFEF if, if she rocked up. But uh, Alex, that's all we've got time for for this episode. Really thank you for your insights on all three of those things, um, both the World Cup, Leo Cordina and uh, the, the fallout that continues around Spanish women's football. And I think we should shout out... There probably haven't been enough male ally voices within Spanish football, but the likes of David De Gea, uh, Hector Bellerin as well, uh, someone listeners of our podcast will be very fond of, I'm sure. And I should have remembered the name of the Real Better striker. Uh, That's the one, yeah, who has uh, said he won't play for Spain again while Rubellis is in situ. So we'll see how that all unfolds. Um, that's all we've got time for for this episode i will be in sweden next week hoping to line up some kind of audio content so i'm hopeful of being able to put out some kind of podcast next week from ling chirping in sweden um but until then thanks again to alex and please do read that that article in the guardian that's in the show notes because it sets out a lot of the history um and the context uh of all of this kind of this whirlwind that has developed but Uh, Thanks very much for listening uh, and we will speak to you again next time.